0: We're in chapter 2, verse 18, and this is the fourth church is to Thyatira. Thyatira was the smallest of all the seven cities and laid about 45 miles southeast of Pergamon. It was famous for its textiles, especially the production of purple dye. Purple dye was a very, very expensive dye to make. It came from a rare snail and its trade guilds. This is the longest of the seven letters addressed to the least known, least important, least remarkable city of Asia. Thyatira was wealthy, but it wasn't this very famous, prominent, power, mega-house of a church. And so it was considered, even though it was wealthy, it was considered largely insignificant. Verse 18. To the angel of the church of Thyatira write the following. This is the solemn pronouncement of the son of God, the one whose eyes like the one who has eyes like a fiery flame and his feet are like polished bronze. I know your deeds, your love, faith, service and steadfast endurance. In fact, your more recent deeds are greater than your earlier ones. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. And by her teaching deceives my servants to commit sexual morality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent, but she is not willing to repent of her sexual immorality. Look, I am throwing her onto a bed of violent illness. And those who commit adultery with her in terrible suffering, unless they repent of their deeds... Furthermore, I will strike her followers with a deadly disease, and then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches the minds and hearts. I will repay each one of you with what your deeds deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, all who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned the so called deep secrets of Satan, to you I say, I do not put any additional burden on you. However, hold on to what you have until I come. And to the one who conquers, and who continues in my deeds until the end, I will give him authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod, and like clay jars he will break them to pieces. Just as I have received the right to rule from my Father, I will give him the morning star, the one who has an ear had better hear, and what the Spirit says to the churches. Title that Christ opens up with is whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, remember, fire is symbolic of judgment, and bronze is also symbolic of judgment. So that's the idea that is here. This communicated the idea that Jesus would pour out his wrath on those in the church who had embraced the false teachings. Even though the previous churches had tolerated the, the teachings of Balaam, who wasn't the real Balaam, but a new recent version of it, and the teachings of the Nicolaitans. This Jezebel, this rebuke against the teachings of Jezebel and those who follow, seems to be far more harsh than the Nicolaitans and the the Bela'am of the previous churches. He spends more time condemning them and throws out a few more name-calling for this one than all the others. And so this is appropriate that he is using the harshest imagery of judgment for this church than any of the other ones. This heightens the judgment as well. The fact that he begins with this heightens the anticipation for the judgment all the more. Jesus did commend them. He commended them for their good works. Their love and faith speak of the motivation for Christian works, which implies not only the continuing trust and faithfulness, but also right faith. So like Ephesus, he commended them for their good deeds, their works, their faithfulness to God, that kind of stuff. They were a diligent church Involved in ministry. Yet, unlike Ephesus, they did tolerate false teachings. So they were very committed to helping other people. They were really committed to um, teaching God's word. But they allowed some false teachings to creep in or just blatantly burst the doors open. We don't know how they came in. And they allowed it. For whatever reason, we're never told why they allow these teachings. Once again, are they afraid to stand up to people and be rejected? Do they not know the word of God well enough themselves to refute it? Is, is there money coming to the church from these false teachers and it's hard to turn that away? Your donations are so appreciated. So what Jesus had against them, though, was a woman claimed to be a prophetess. This is not Jezebel um, from 1 Kings and going into 2 Kings. Jezebel is by far the nastiest woman in the Bible. And she's considered one of the nastiest women in human history. Not literally, but in a literary narrative kind of sense, she rises to the top. Now, there's way been, way nastier female rulers than this woman. But in a narrative story kind of a sense, she's considered pretty vicious. She, um, basically, she is marked out as an evil woman for two major reasons in First Kings. And the first reason is that Ahab was a descendant of David and he was ruling over Israel or, sorry, Judah in the south. And he married her and she was the high priestess of Baal, uh, or the, uh, the storm god of the Canaanites. And she brought all that into Israel and Baal is like the god that God hates the most, if you can actually say that. Um, in fact, he was so despised and so hated by Yahweh all throughout the Bible that his name be- became associated with Satan by the Pharisees when we get to the Gospels. And whether Satan was the true power behind Baal or was it another demon, I don't know. But he was a significant figure in ancient history. And she brought Baal worship in and a temple and brought in over a thousand prophets and prophetess for this religion, and so she sunk Israel or Judah deep into idolatry, um, deeper than they had ever really been before. And the second reason she's condemned, so that's that's a violation of a, a God, a lack of love for a God. The second thing she's condemned for is her husband Ahab, one of the gardens or the vineyard of another man Naboth, and he wanted to tear it all down and build gardens, and he couldn't get them and so she comes in and basically calls them a pansy and says I'll get them for you and she basically falsely accuses Naboth and has him killed and strips it all up and and this is a lack of love for your neighbor and so God despises more than the only thing that comes anywhere close to God's despising of idolatry is corruption of justice and the oppression of people and, and so basically she came in and she corrupted the justice against Naboth, stripped him of his lands. And not only that, God is the one who put you in the land, which means he's the only one that has a right to take you out of land. And so this is the the, 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 tank, the, the laws basically love God and love others. And there, you don't get any worse than stripping the land of their worship of Yahweh and right, taking them to Baal but also stripping Naboth of the inheritance that God gave him, oppressing his family and stripping them of their honor and stealing from them in a corrupt and injustice kind of way. And so God despises this woman. Most likely, this woman is a prophetess, and God has nicknamed her Jezebel, which kind of gives the emphasis of how much this new woman also makes God puke, so to speak, abhors her in so many ways, he is against her. And the idea is that most likely this woman is not only false in her teachings, but probably also nasty in her behavior. He could have compared her to many other false teachers. But Jezebel is the one who stands up in the first Testament as not only a false teacher, but also incredibly nasty in her behavior. And, and this is what he compares this prophetess with, which suggests this is a big deal that Thyatira has allowed her in. This is a big deal that she's been tolerated and allowed to have a position of power. And it could be that they're just absolutely scared of her. But the implication that God says, I have this against you, you've tolerated her. Which means the idea is that if they're truly trusting in him, no matter how powerful she is, they can remove her. Because greater is he who is in them than he who is in the world. And they're not trusting in that. And they're tolerating it. Once again, we don't know why they're tolerating her, but they are. And God despises this. He lashes this out against her and says that she calls herself a prophetess. And so she's some kind of a false message in some kind of way. She deceives the servants and she commits sexual morality. This isn't a sexual morality of sexual physical behavior. Although that could be happening because we are talking about people from the Roman Empire, and that was a very common way of worshiping the gods and that kind of stuff. But what God's more interested in here is not just sexual immorality behavior physically through sex, but her idolatry, which is often associated with um, adultery And the Bible. We see this especially in the book of Hosea. Where God basically commands Hosea to marry a woman by the name of Gomer, who he knows that she's going to end up prostituting herself off to people for money and that kind of stuff. And Hosea is called to call her back, and clean her up, and redeem her, no matter how many times she messes up. And God basically says, "This is me with Israel," and and then all throughout the prophets, he calls them and he uses really harsh language: prostitutes, whores some very graphic sexual language to refer to their idolatry in so many ways in order to paint the graphic horrificness of their behavior. And so this is what he's um, throwing at her, not necessarily a sexual thing, but that her idolatry is misleading so many people and so many are joining her in her practices, which could imply a sexual fertility cult. But specifically what he despises more than anything is not the behavior, but the heart that is leading other people away from God. Although he's not okay with the behavior. I always feel like I have to say that afterwards. There's always somebody who wants to re-edit. Um, I'm not talking about you guys. It's just the wide world internet. He also is against them was food sacrificed to idols. Paul has made it very clear in Romans that there's nothing wrong with eating meat that has been sacrificed to idols. And he meant that in the sense that they would just every butcher would just sacrifice the meat the cow or the oxen or the goat or whatever to an idol and then chop it all up and throw in their butcher marker mark and Paul's like basically like look if if you're going to refuse the eat meat sacrifice idol, one, that does not change the meat in any kind of way. It's not like the idol magically changes the meat and the meat goes into you, magically changes you in some corrupt, horrible way. It is what it is. And two, if you're going to refuse that, you have to refuse pretty much everything that is being sold in the market. And you're going to start at that. It's kind of like when you protest, like, a certain store, like Walmart or whatever, whatever, whatever. I'm not thinking of anything specifically right now. Um, nobody really protests Walmart a whole lot. But anything, and you're like, oh, but they support this organization or da-da-da-da. It's like, welcome to every single corporation out there, except for probably maybe one. And it might be Chick-fil-A, but that might not last long because Hobby is already like sold out in some way, supposedly according to the haters on YouTube. It's like the new thing, um, Christian hate. It's like let's make YouTube videos now about how many people we can hate, and in order to get a whole bunch of clicks. It's like the new thing. It's okay because we're hating bad people, but the idea is like you're gonna not, you're not gonna be able to buy anything anywhere if you just protest them for bad associations. Yes, Paul says that the stronger Christian realizes that this doesn't really change anything on a molecular level, although he would not use that word. Um, however. The implication here is they actually are participating in the sacrifices, and that Paul does condemn, specifically in 1 Corinthians, where he says, I know that the idols are not real, but there are demons in those temples. And when they're worshiping the gods, they're worshiping the demons. And when they're sacrificing to the demons, they're sacrificing to the gods. So how dare you go into those temples and eat meals with them in their temples and then come to the Lord's Supper and think you can participate and have fellowship with God and Jesus as well. So there is a difference between the culture selling you things that might be associated with things you don't agree with. And there's nothing you can do about that because it doesn't change the thing itself. And and verses going in and actively participating in these sacrificial rituals to these pagan gods, or walking through the doorways of these dens of demons that they're worshiping. And so that's, a, that's the difference between John and Paul. It is not that John is contradicting Paul, but rather it's the behavior, the participation versus just the buying something that just happened to have an association. And so he condemns them for this, because they are participating in idolatry in every way that you can possibly imagine. False teachings, the rituals, the sacrifices to the pagan gods, and the fellowship that they're bringing into the community of the believers. I have given their time to repent. This is one of the absolute amazing character of God. How often he lets people repent, and how much time that he gives them. A little reminder, God's patience is, is incredible. When he says, I am long-suffering, and I bless people to the thousandth generation, but I judge people only to the third or the fourth, he really means that. Remember when we were in Genesis 6, God said that they were thinking only evil all the time, and the whole world was corrupt, that the only time in human history is going to wipe out the entire world. And yet, he gave them 120 years to repent. There was literally nothing good. They, they could only think evil and only do evil all the time. And yet God says, I'm going to give you 120 years to repent. And when they nobody did, not only did it show that his patience and mercy, but also showed his justice that nobody repented in 120 years. Therefore, he had every right to do what he was going to do. <laughs> then when we get to Genesis 15, He tells Abraham that you can't take the land of Canaan yet because the sin of the Amorites slash Canaanites has not yet reached its full measure. Now, they were already doing things like bestiality and pedophilia and and, 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 and oppression of other people through sexual oppression and worshiping idols and all these horrific things that not even Hollywood has been brave enough to show in movies yet. And yet God says they don't deserve to die yet. Maybe individual people for their crimes, but not an entire community wiped off the face sir. You had to give them another 400 years. And not just that, he has set up a priest by the name of Melchizedek in chapter 13, who is literally worshiping Yahweh and preaching the word of God. He sends Abraham in, Isaac preaches it, Jacob preaches it, not that great, but he does. He convinces Pharaoh a little bit, so he had some marks in there. And then we're told that he sends witnesses. He sends the two angels in to Sodom and Gomorrah. And then when they finally come to conquest the land, he sends, it says spies, but James calls them witnesses. And he's always sending people in two by two, at least two by two in order to be a witness to thing. before he finally starts judging them with the Israelites. And God knows how many other people he sent in those 400 years that is not covered in the Bible because it's a story of Israel and not Canaan and so what god is saying is i gave her time to repent that's a big deal this isn't like you got to the count of three one two right this is like i gave her a long time to repent and i shouldn't have to tell you how many years it was because i've already demonstrated how long i wait for people to repent and yet her and her followers have not. And also makes it clear, too, that he also sent people to rebuke her and to witness to her every single opportunity he could. Because his greatest desire is to redeem the world. And he will pursue us unlike anybody else. But she is not willing to repent of her sexual morality. Look, I am throwing her into a bed of violent illness. Those who commit adultery with her too into terrible suffering. So God is basically saying because she does not repent, she's going to suffer physically some kind of illness. Some kind of illness is going to throw her on her bed in some serious violent kind of way. And all of her followers are going to go with her as well. And God's most common way of judging people is through some kind of sickness or natural plague. We saw, granted, they were supercharged in Egypt, um, but some kind of plague or illness. That doesn't mean if you have an illness, God is judging you. However, the one who really seeks the heart of God, when they do get sick, and I don't mean just like the common cold, one should immediately get on their knees and ask themselves, God, is there any sin that I'm being judged now? And if it's so, then allow the Spirit to bring this to mind so I can repent of it. And if God does not bring anything through to you or through somebody else in the community, then chances are it's just part of living in a fallen world. And then the question that you're going to ask after that, other than praying for healing, is what do you want me to teach me through this? What do you want to teach me through this? Yes, not every sickness is a result of judgment, but every sickness should lead immediately to, is there sin that I need to repent of, and what are you trying to teach me through this? For her case, it is sin, and for them as well. The other thing you need to realize is that most of the time God doesn't actively punish you. He doesn't come in with a lightning bolt and start striking you with diseases and plagues. All throughout the Bible, and specifically and clearly in Romans, God says his favorite, and he doesn't say my favorite form, but my most common, the way that I typically punish people is by giving them over to what they've already done. Remember, be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. In fact, I I used to have a fellow um, Bible teacher with me, Al Aiton, who is an incredibly wise man who basically said the worst thing that could ever happen to you is God giving you what you want Um, because that means you're being judged. You're being judged because we usually, and I don't mean like, oh, I want my children to be saved. I mean like those desires, Um, the desire that leads to unhealthy and ungodly things. Most likely the sickness is going to come upon her. It's just the natural sickness that comes from whatever behavior she's participating in in some kind of way. And God is going to give her over to that. And basically what God typically does is he says, I love you, I'm pursuing you, all that kind of stuff. But if you keep resisting me, then okay, hands off. You're on your own. I'm not abandoning you. I'm not leaving you. I'll always be sending my witnesses into your life. And I always have my spirit around you, always constantly speaking to you and drawing you towards me. But my hand of protection is off. Can you, right? We've we've watched the news. You've driven down the highway and seen things. You've gone down through bad neighborhoods. Have you ever thought about how many things could go wrong in your life on a daily basis? <laughs> have you ever thought about like truly how blessed you are and how much you're really truly protected from? Right? I mean, a little bit there's a little bit of survivors guilt too, like why me and not this person? I mean, that's extreme like fighting in the war kind of a sense. But have you ever really truly thought about how blessed you are, and no matter how bad you have it, and I'm not downplaying anybody's suffering. Some people have it really bad, but there's always someone who has it worse. And how many other things could be going, or how many times it could be latered on you. And you have no idea what God is protecting us from. I have no idea. And I know, like, even when we get to heaven one day, it's like, some, I don't even really want to know either. Like, that's one thing, I don't want that question answered of all the things that could have happened. And basically what God is saying is pulling his hand off. That doesn't, once again, that, means, that doesn't mean if you're being obedient, that kind of stuff, God is just always going to protect you all the time because he uses trials. But he doesn't pull his hand off of you. And that's a scary thought. Some of you have had children on a little, mi- oh, we've all done this at some point with our children, Some on a big level where you're just fine, you're so stubborn, you won't listen to me, then go ahead and do it. And we'll see what happens, right? We've done that on all, all different kinds of levels. And it's not because you don't love them. It's because you're hoping that they'll reap what they sowed and realize that this is dumb and it's painful and it's, it's, and I don't want to do that anymore. And it's beating their head against the concrete wall. And that's what God is doing. And his hope is that they would come back to him. And this is the point that Paul said to the, in Corinthians. Kick them out of the church. Because one, they're a horrible corruption influence on the community of believers but two in order that they would go out into the world and realize how miserable is without the community without the blessings of god and the want to repent and they finally did it even though paul like had to drag them into doing that and then when they the person did repent and they wanted to come back in the community the community won't let them in and paul's like what seriously the whole point was for them to repent and come back and you won't let them do in that and so that makes it very clear in that situation. That's the most clearest example of the God does this for you to repent and come back to Him. His blessings and His judgments are both used to draw you close to God. And if the blessings don't draw you close to God, He'll take them away. And the judgments won't bless you, to, um, bring you close to God, then you're just going deeper and deeper into your devices. And so he doesn't specifically say this, but in the greater context of God's judgment of the Bible, this is most likely what what he's going to do. He's just pulling his hands off. He's pulling his hands off. Unless they repent. Meaning all you have to do is repent and my hands come back on. My hands come, not in a happy-go-lucky kind of a sense, but I'll be here and I'll, I'll, I'll stay the flood to a certain extent. Furthermore, I will strike her followers with deadly diseases. And then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches minds and hearts. I will repay each one of you for your deeds that you deserve. Not only do me, Yahweh, not that I am Yahweh, that I, Yahweh, doing miracles and blessing you tremendously is your opportunity to say, let me tell you about my God. The fact that God blesses you tremendously in a way that you do not deserve or you're not worthy of or that's unfathomably unexplainable is an opportunity for God to say, I am the one that did this. But God's judgments also do the same thing. Not only is it to call them back into repentance to God, but it's also his way of saying, look, you will answer for the way that you harm other people. And this gives glory to God. And so God's justice brings him glory. But God's mercy also brings him glory. God's blessings bring him glory. All these devices are important for bringing people back to Christ. And that's very important for you to understand as we get into Revelation chapter 6 and on. Because one when he asks, how could a loving God be so harsh? And the whole point is to break them down so they will repent and come back to know the loving God. And we're going to see that over and over again. Over and over again, God says, but they did not repent. They did not repent, which means that was the focus, not the judgments. But everybody will know that I am the one that sees everything, and I'll repay each one of you for your deeds. Now, what God does not mean here is that you're going to be condemned to hell based on your works, and you're going to be awarded heaven based on your works. It means you're going to reap the judgments and the consequences based on your works. The question I always get from students all the time. They're like, Mr. Barker, are all sins equal? And I'm like, heck no. And they're like, that's not what we were told in Sunday school class. No offense to any Sunday school teacher, but that's not biblical. Not all sins are equal, depending on how you look at it. All sins, regardless of what they are, will separate you from God in your relationship and intimacy and trust. We know that. Even a a little teeny little fib all the way up to full-blown genocide is going to hurt your relationship to people that you love and and it's going to destroy intimacy and fellowship and all that kind of stuff. So in that sense, all sins are equal. All sins hinder your relationship with people. But not all sins hurt people to the same degree. Therefore, not all sins bring the same level of consequences. And we know this. We don't punish A little kid who's lying about stealing a candy bar to the same extreme that we would want to punish Saddam Hussein for genociding entire people groups because we know it's not the same level it still breaks your trust with that kid it hinders your relationship with that kid but they don't all bring the same amount of pain and lack of love and the same level of broken trust therefore they don't bring the same level of consequences And so in this sense, I'm going to judge you according to your deeds. Yes, whatever you've done is going to hinder your relationship with God, but we know that some things hinder the relationship more than others. There's some things that like, yes, I get that. We're all sinners and we all hurt each other. But then there's like, but that, that's harder to forgive. God is saying is, you will be judged according to your deeds. And the greater your offense, the greater the harm that you've caused other people the greater the judgment that is going to come upon you, the greater the consequences. Not in eternal condemnation kind of a sense, but in an earthly consequence. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, all who do not hold on to this teaching, who have learned not to to the so-called deep teachings or deep secrets of Satan, to you I say, I do not put any additional burden on you. So he says, but there are some of you, In the church, a few, they have not gone this route. You've not gone this route. You do not support her. You do not back her up. You have not tolerated her. For whatever reason, you probably don't have the power to remove her, but you have not participated. You've not been okay with this. Maybe they've spoken out and been just destroyed in some kind of way, socially or reputation or whatever. Um, Maybe in the guilds, we've talked about this before, is required from you. To participate in some kind of idolatry in the guilds in order to have a living and to survive and they suffering in that kind of a sense but you've not participated in these feasts um, oftentimes even the guilds would have feasts to the sick se- not only that they require you to pay your dues or burn a little incense to the emperor but if you like think of unions today you go to your union and pay your financial dues but then you would also have to participate in some kind of fertility sexual right in order to prove how committed you are to the unions. And if you didn't, you kicked out of the unions. And of course, outside the unions, there is no work. And so, this is how thoroughly this stuff has corrupted their society. And you need to understand this like, it has corrupted the society of the Roman Empire so significantly that when Paul's writing to Corinthians, I did my thesis on Corinthians. I had a professor in seminary, and I said, I don't know what theses I want to do. And he says, I'm writing commentary on theses, on Corinthians. Do you want to help my research? And I said, sure. I was like, what do you want me to research? He's like, the sexual practices of the Roman Empire. I was like, yay. Yeah. So, <laughs> that, so that's what I did my theses on, every form that you could possibly imagine, because a lot of that's what Corinthians is dealing with. But it was fascinating, not in an immoral sense, but just how jacked up humans can actually get. We often think America's getting bad. You haven't seen anything yet. And I really mean that. We're still nowhere even close to what humanity can really be. You go study the Roman Empire, it is messed up. Read a book called Paul Among His People. She was a feminist who hated Paul as a male chauvinist pig. And then she did her doctorate on the Roman Empire and fell in love with Paul um, because she finally got why he was saying what he was saying. You have to realize that these practices permeated everything in the culture. Sex was a big part of this thing. And everywhere you turn, um, it was there in the streets. It was blatantly in the streets. And, and the idea is when Paul is writing the Corinthians, many of these Gentiles have come out of this. And you guys know well enough, like, either encountering people in your life or maybe in your own life, just because you convert doesn't mean addictions and behaviors just stop. There's chemical rewiring that has happened. There's emotional rewiring. There's all kinds of stuff. And there's tons of tools that God has given us spiritually, practically, and um, in the synapses to overcome those. But that takes work and time. And so when Paul's writing Corinthians, He's writing to Christians who come into the church, and they're worshiping Christ in the same way. The same sexual deviant behavior, the same kind of sacrifices. Because just because they came to Christ doesn't mean a whole new form of theology was downloaded in their brain instantaneously. And a whole new form of behavior just overrode their chemical synapses and, 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 and structures. One of the biggest arguments that Corinthians is making, we often think that he's just rebuking them like a bunch of Christians who kind of got wrapped up in some bad college students or fraternity or sororities somewhere and you're like, No, 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 no. Remember don't do that. That's how you're raised. No, he's talking to people who have no idea that this is not the way that you worship Christ. And his major argument is different God, different worship practices. Period. That's his main argument. By the time he gets to Second Corinthians, which is actually his fourth letter to them, now he has no patience for them because he's already written them three letters, and they should know by now. And so that's what we're dealing with. There's probably a lot of Gentiles have left the faith, and they've been easily led into this Jezebel's teaching because it was already something that was stamped into their psyche and their physical chemical makeup from all their years growing up in a Greek world. They, 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 they're having a hard time sorting this, However, John is writing even post-Paul and saying, no, no, no. You should know by now. You should know by now. And this is what he's condemning. You've tolerated this, but also her so-called deep secrets. Now, the most dominant religion among the intelligentia or the elite was this thing called religions, And religions believed that there was secret knowledge out there. Um, so... Not only did you have, uh, one of the most predominant ones was a man by the name of Pythagoras, also Plato. Um, Pythagoras, Pythagorean theorem. Um, Pythagoras believed that mathematics, the the mathematics that build up the physical universe, music, the mathematics that builds up the spirit and the soul, the inner universe, and then, of course, the um, um, astronomy, the mathematics that builds the, the spiritual realm or the outer universe, is, was the secret to understanding the universe and how it works. And you had to become a master of this. Once you became a master, you could look beyond the simple mathematical equations and see deeper into the truths of how the universe got structured. And then once you knew this, it would give you power. And if knowledge is power, then I am a god. And it would help you become a god. But this secret knowledge was only reserved for the elite. The ones who actually had time to sit around and study and learn and then meditate on these things and think, philosophize, and then go deep enough to connect these dots. And it was excluded from anybody who was not worthy. You had to prove yourself. This is where we get the idea of fraternity and sororities. They're birthed out of these misreligion like ideas, an initiation you had to go through in order to prove yourself. And, and so there's, hey, come join me. And I. If you prove yourself worthy and work hard enough, you're like, ooh, 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 yes, yes. I will teach you secret teachings that will help level you up, uh, make you successful at your work. And make right Right now, it's like the the YouTube videos. You're watching YouTube and the commercial comes on. It's like, stop working 9 to 5 all the time. I'll show you how to make a million dollars a day just doing YouTube and working it. Or, hey, I look at this Lamborghini. I bought this after working for like one month. And you're like, there's a little part of you like, oh. <laughs> I'm tired of my job, right? But it's just one of those other pyramid schemes, kind of an idea. This is just a demonic pyramid scheme. This is the idea, he says, his so called deep teachings. Gnosis, knowledge. This is why Paul comes along and says, I will teach you epi gnosis. Epi is above, epidermis, above the surface. I will teach you the knowledge that goes over and beyond the one that can only come from the Holy Spirit and is not secret. The Holy Spirit has revealed it through Jesus Christ, and it's not reserved for only the elite and worthy, it's been made to all people, all nations, all ethnicities, all social classes, all genders. And so this is what he's condemning is this idea that I will have I will gain power off of you as you come to me and you're dependent upon secret teachings that I won't tell you that Christ has already made known for all people, regardless of who you are. And this is oppression and exploitation of other people. And God abhors this. God abhors this. And so he calls it the secrets of Satan. Because all it is is a trap to lure you into hell. But to you who have not gone along with this, I will not put any extra burden on you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I will not heap any more. This comes rooted in the idea where it begins and in Genesis chapter 18, where God says I'm going to condemn Son and Gomorrah for the corruption. And Abraham says, will you wipe out the righteous along with the wicked? And then God's answer basically, in so many conversations, Q&A exchange, no, I don't believe in collateral damage. Even though every single nation that has ever lived, and even the ones today, including America, do believe in collateral damage. And then they practice that on a regular basis. And God says, no, if you're righteous, I will not lay judgments upon you. I will not make the burden of you having to deal with this woman and being oppressed and exploited by her because you won't give in. Any worse by me heaping my judgment on top of you after she's heaped her judgment on you. That's not the kind of God that I am. God does not punish you if you're not going into these practices. And to the one who conquers and who continues in my deeds until the end, I will give him the authority over the nations. Even though you're oppressed now by this woman with her power, secret teachings, if you persevere in the faith, then I will give you the ability to conquer, and I will give you the authority over the nations. How do you become the first and the most authoritative? By becoming the last and by being willing to suffer for Christ. This is my point. I will give him the authority over the nations. And then he goes on and proves that he can do it because he says he will rule them with an iron scepter or an iron rod. And like clay jars, he will break them to pieces. This comes from Numbers 24 and and Psalm 2. God predicts the coming of the Messiah and says... And I will lift up my Messiah. He doesn't use that word Messiah, but my chosen one, that same concept. And he will dash them to the ground like pottery. And with an iron rod, he will crush them. When we're going through the Bible, and my daughters are like, Hey, Dad, what's an iron rod? And I'm like, an iron rod is for bashing people's skulls in with. <laughs> but I had to tell them that. Because the Numbers goes on and says, with an iron scepter, he will crush them, and he will crush their skulls of Edom and Seer and all that kind of stuff. So it wasn't like I was graphic over extreme. They had to understand what this means, that Christ isn't just the suffer of the little children. He's also the scepter-wielding warrior as well. And the idea is that this roots end the fact that my son, my Messiah, I allowed him To grow up as a nobody on this earth for over 33 years. Where he was poor, he was ignored, he was ostracized, he was mocked, he was even going through suffering, he was tortured, and then killed. Yet I exalted him, Hebrews chapter 1, Philippians chapter 2, and vindicated him, and put him at my right hand. And now he has an iron scepter to which he's going to come back, a couple of chapters. And he's going to crush the skulls of those who went against him and did not repent. And if I did that for him, then will I not do those do it for you whom I sent him to die for? And this is why Paul goes on and says, if Christ was vindicated, then we know we can be vindicated and we will be made co-heirs with Christ and we'll sit on the right hand with him and rule over the world like God said in Genesis to Adam and Eve. You are to rule and subdue creation as vice regents. The problem is when we elevate ourselves equal to or above God as rulers, not as vice regents. And so God says, I have proved that I can take someone of suffering and oppression and exploitation to the point of death and exalt them and vindicate them and make them a ruler to judge the world. I will do the same thing for you. Persevere. Do not give up. If you conquer, I will give you the same reward. Not equal to Christ, but co-in him. Not co-beside him because you're equal with him, but co-you have the air and the power because you're in him. And anytime you're not in him, you don't have it. And so this comes from those prophecies that God would do that one day and he fulfilled it with Christ. And then when we get into Revelation, we're going to actually see that happen in chapter 19. We're going to see that happen in chapter 19. Just as I have received the right to rule from my father. um, Sorry, I forgot. Jesus speaking here. There's not a lot of letters throughout the Bible where Jesus is speaking. This is Jesus saying, I was rewarded by God with this, so I will reward you as well just as I received the right to rule from my father, and I will give him the morning star. Now, what is this? This also comes from two different places. Well, this comes from two different places. It comes from the pagan Greek mythology, as well as the biblical prophecies of Christ. In the biblical sense, it also comes from Numbers chapter 24. and the same passage, Right before he talks about Jesus coming with the iron scepter to crush the skulls of Edom and Seir and all that kind of stuff, it says, Behold, I see a star rising up out of Jacob. This terminology, morning star, was used all throughout the ancient world. And the morning star is the planet Venus. In the ancient world, in the very beginning, Remember, most of what we can know about things is because of telescopes. The the bigger, the more high-powered the telescope. Now with Hubble, the more we can know about things. The the smaller power or the absence of a telescope, the less we know. So in the ancient world, they noticed that this bright light appeared first thing in the morning and also in the evening. And, And it was the brightest light in all the sky before the sun appeared. And they called it the morning star and the evening star. Later, as their ability to observe things got more and more advanced, they realized it was the planet Venus both times. It appears the way that Venus actually doesn't do an elliptical thing, and actually does this weird spiraling thing, and then it spirals so big that over 50 years it actually forms a five-pointed flower petal kind of a thing. When it comes up, it spirals up in the morning, and then disappears and spirals back up again in the evening. And then, of course, this all forms a bigger kind of thing over 50 years. And so they didn't realize it was the same thing appearing twice. But it was the brightest star. And, of course, we worship light. Light is very important to us, especially in the ancient world where nothing good happens at night. And if we didn't have 24-hour light bulbs, nothing good would happen here at night. And if you talk to any cop, even with lights, very little happens after 11 o'clock. There is truth to that. The light was the brightest, and that became an object of worship to them. Then it became an object of power as well as enlightenment, on um, knowledge. And so it became associated with generals and kings. And the idea was when all the battle has been done, they would declare themselves the morning star. They even created a scepter that had a ball at the end of in the medieval period with spikes on it, looked like a star, and they called it the morning star to literally bash in your heads with. And this idea of I am the most ultimate victor that there is because I am the light That is shining the brightest at the end of the battle, and all my enemies are at my feet. This is the terminology that God in Numbers is tapping into of the Messiah. That he, of course, for Christ, he literally is the light. This is why John will say in the beginning, was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word was the light of all mankind. John will say in first John, God is light and in him there's no darkness. He is literally the light. And what Christ is becoming is he is the morning star. He's the most ultimate victor. Peter is going to come along and says, I pray that you would allow the morning star to rise in your heart. Meaning let Christ rise in your heart and crush and conquer all this sin and the fortresses that have built up in there and just destroy them so he may reign supreme. And Revelation is going to end with Jesus leveling the playing field down, eliminating all evil, all sin. Even the devil and everything in the lake of fire. And he will end the book by saying, I am the root of David. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the bright morning star. All you posers, you eventually got conquered by somebody else no matter how victorious you were, and then you died. But me, I will stand for all eternity as the ultimate champion. And this is the idea that I will give you the bright morning star. You will have victory in him you have victory in him. In fact, this is exactly what God is talking about in Isaiah chapter 14. When a king lifts him up and says, I am the morning star. And God goes to him and says, now he's dead because of my judgments. Now Israel, go and taunt Nebuchadnezzar for bragging about being the morning star. Because when he goes to the grave, all the other kings who are dead in the grave will say, look, now you've become just like us, dead, eaten by worms. That's what Isaiah 14 is all about. No matter how big you are, like I said, I mentioned this in church a few Sundays ago, but I still love the phrase, Bill and Ted's Bogus Adventure. It's a sequel to Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. And death is like this character in the movie. He's Drake, the Grim Reaper, and he has this little ditty that I've always loved from a kid. The movie's not that great, but the ditty is awesome. (laughs) <laughs> Some of you might know what I'm talking about. He says, you may be a king on high or a little street sweeper. Everyone dances with the reaper. That's the idea. Our modern day idea is no hearses go behind, um, U-Hauls behind hearses. But that's just so much more poetic. So I just love it. So, But the idea is that's what they're bragging. That's what they're bragging. Um, not bragging, but just saying, welcome. Welcome to our world. And there's this movie called Stardust where all these brothers think that they're the best, and they're trying to take over the throne, and they all just start dying one by one, and their ghosts are there, and they're like, hey, welcome, you're dead just like us. And it was not until they did that they realized everything they were fighting for was just pointless, empty. This is the idea that's being communicated. I am the morning star, Christus. He is the light. This is why the devil goes around masquerading as an angel of light. He's always posing as the morning star in your life in some kind of a way. But only God is. Only God, only Christ is. And so God says, You can go after the deep, secret teachings of Satan and think that's the light that will lead you on. But only Christ can give you the morning star. It will not be easy, there might be suffering. You won't have political, financial, reputational power necessarily. But in the end, I will make you rulers. In the end, I will give you the victory. In the end, you will reap the kingdom of God. I am the morning star, not these posers. Everything will fade away like grass in the fire, Isaiah says. And we need to remind ourselves that. And and, and if you really struggle with this idea of pursuing this stuff, let me recommend something to you. Read interviews of the people who have power and fame that you admire and you wish you were like them. People are surprisingly honest about how much they hate their life and how miserable and empty they are. You can go Rihanna, Lady Gaga, you can Bob Dylan, okay? they talked about like what's it like being famous He's like I, I don't know i sold my soul to the devil you you talk you these interviews are brilliantly obvious to celebrities they're mean they're bitter why because they're just empty in the inside and and if you, and if and if you don't you're like i don't know where to get these interviews go to the Columbus library rent a series called VH1 behind the scenes okay it was a very popular show that ran during the 90s and it's all about these great stars like Metallica and, and um, the BGS, ABBA, and all these people. And it's like, where are they now? And behind the scenes, their lives are miserable. Absolutely miserable. Absolutely miserable. You wouldn't want, you're like, yeah, they have broken families. They're dying of OD, all that kind of stuff. It's miserable. They look really sparkly on the media and the television and their interviews and their keynote speakers Um, Amazon and Apple and all that kind of stuff, but deep down inside they're miserable, and they're blatantly obvious. There's only two. I watched it for a long time. It was like my guilty sin, but I was just fascinated by just how miserable these people's lives were, even though they had everything. And I mean everything. It's it's the book of Ecclesiastes. But the only two exceptions in all the time that I watched this was a man by the... uh, uh, mc hammer and a woman by the name of vanity and vanity had been sexualized by the industry and she had done everything you could possibly imagine and she came to christ and got out of it and she was now happy and filled with peace and joy just being a choir singer at her local little church mc hammer was already a pastor and christian to begin with and eventually he went bankrupt not because he blew it on alcohol and drugs and that kind of stuff, because he just gave away so much. He was actually giving more money around, away to people than what he was making. That was the problem. He didn't actually know how much money was coming in. Like, he would just go to people who were homeless. And he was like, I'll pay you $1,000 a day. Just stand here and guard the door. Because he just was trying to help people. And eventually he went bankrupt, and he went back to his church and pastored. And I don't know if he's dead or not, but he did all the way, like, all the way up to like 15 or so years ago, I guess, the last time I checked on him. Those are the only two people who had any kind of positive thing in their life and both of them had Christ. And everybody else was just miserable. This is what Christ is talking about here. I will give you the morning star. Let him in his ears hear. The Spirit says to the churches, pay attention to the church of Thyatira.